Hello and welcome to the 161st episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what their influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focused on the developer themselves, and in the second half we discuss the game they're here to promote, which in this case is Astral Traveller by Dragon Slumber. Kevin. Hello. Who are you and what do you do? All right. Well, my name is Kevin Jaguer. I'm a French-Canadian uh, indie game developer. Uh, I uh, So I'm launching my second... I, I have launched my second game this year, uh, Astral Traveler, following Arlite Core, which was a, a uh, Japanese-style RPG, a retro-style Japanese uh, RPG. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm uh, I'm a little bit of everything since I'm a solo dev. So I I have a college degree in programming, but uh, when it comes to being an indie dev, I do pretty much everything: management, uh, hiring artists, uh, uh, all that jazz, promotion. Okay, going on where, where cool podcasts. You, where did you study? Uh, so I studied in college. I uh, specifically studied computer sciences in. Um, Early 2000. Uh, right where, now, where I'm... was that? Sorry, where was that? Oh, uh, in Quebec, actually. Okay, there you go. In, in so, Quebec City. So, okay, right, awesome. And, and um, is it something? I mean, I'm going to go into basically asking the question: How did you make your start making video games? And was that the thing that drove you into university to do computer science? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so even as a kid, as a 11-year-old kid, I, I always had that interest in making video games. I, I had an NES, and uh, I, 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 once I had uh, a console, that, that was it. I, I was really hooked into doing that kind of stuff. Um, my first computer, actually, I'm not sure anyone will know what that, this is, but it was an imagination machine, which, which was made in 1982 and had a rudimentary version of BASIC on it. And um, that's kind of where I, I did some really, really simple programming things. And then over the years, I, I got, quote unquote, a real computer with a, a Pentium and continued programming and making games. And that kind of led into college where I, I learned to program. And uh, here I am just uh making my games that is interesting because in over here in the uk the, the the story development of video games is very different uh you know this most americans and north americans and canadians and what have you know this now but it's only recently understood that we didn't have the NES. uh we had other computers like uh the bbc computer or the the, the spectrum and that kind of stuff and that had they were proper computers for want of a better phrase, they were, had keyboards and they were, you turn them on and there was like a little cursor saying, well, go on, do something then. <laughs> so, sure. yeah, so it sounds like this imagination machine, which I'm going to need to look up in, look up and we'll see what that was, uh, was your, your first sort of foray into the use of basic, I guess, yes? Yeah, exactly. And uh, it really was the only computer that, that I 
that there was my first computer. It was made in 1982, and the the next one I had was a Pentium 75. Wow, so I had quite a, a leap. huge gap. I didn't. I I never grew up with the Commodore. I never grew up with uh, anything Atari, for instance. No. Uh, I I. You knew went... what they were. You knew they were around, but you just didn't have any of those. Right? No, not even. Well, my friend had one, but I never really knew what they were. I, okay. now, nowadays, I do because I love retro stuff, and even as you speak, the uh, the ZS Spectrum and whatnot. I I love reading about that stuff. But back then, all I knew was really uh, I, I discovered the NES, which was followed by the SNES later on, and uh, later still I got my uh, Pentium, and that really opened up uh, opportunities. So when you were playing the NES games, did you find that you were quite inspired by them? Did you know that were made by people? Because the NES uh, is something I've only recently discovered, I must confess, because like I said, I'm British and we didn't really have the NES back then. It was a phenomenally powerful machine for what it was. Um, were you, was, were you, was that one of the things you like, wow, that's really amazing what they can pull out of what seemingly is quite uh, uh, not much of a machine. They could make do amazing things. I, I didn't really have that that sense of an ocean back then. Right. Um, it, it was more of a matter of, um, you know, I, I, I think I just liked, I kind of liked the design of it in a way because even as a kid, I was the kind of guy who would draw my own map, my own theoretical maps for Mega Man, for instance, or for Zelda. Um, so... so I even though I didn't have necessarily a an idea of the people who work behind the games, I felt that I wanted to be one of those people since uh, I, I kind of wanted to add my own elements to um, to those games. Um, and even later on, uh, as as I entered my teen years, um, so th- there were. There were emulators and whatnot, and, and you could kind of go in and modify ROMs of the of Nintendo games. You can modify the sprites or change the text and whatnot. And I, I really found that super intriguing to kind of dive into that and get a sense of how they were made and how um, information was presented in those platforms. Right. The whole act of, for me, the whole act of... Uh changing things on a tv screen was just mind-boggling like wow i don't have to sit here just passively take it in i can manipulate the stuff on the screen and from then on the whole world exploded um so can you tell us what your first game was or was it a mod or what what could you remember i think i mean the first game that i really really remember would have to be super mario brothers 3 i was thinking what Um, you made not what you played oh that i made yeah Okay, well, the the first game that that I remember making would be a, a sort of basic game where it was a fighting game, which was all text based, and uh, it was absolutely terrible, as you <laughs> might imagine. Yeah, of um, it, so it was a text based fighting game, and you would you would select the move that you wanted to perform: um, weak punch, strong punch, uh, th- those types of um, super attack, uh, fireball. And um, each move would have a certain amount of speed and a chance to hit and all of those types of stats. Um, so it was very, it, it felt very much like a, um, 
a uh, pen and paper RPG in a way because uh, you know and abstract it out to uh, to a PC. It didn't play well at, at all. Uh, there, there were you could just spam high kick and you would by min maxing the system you could uh, eventually win the game. But um, I, I guess that would be the first game that I really worked on. As you can imagine, I don't have it anymore, sadly. No, but. I think obviously you learned some very valuable lessons that you can think up with game concepts, but unless they are actually properly balanced and that's, that's the key to making, uh, if the underlying maths work, then the game is worthwhile. And there's been a fair few board games that I've played that you start playing and go, wait, <laughs> sure, <laughs> this doesn't <absolutely>. work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's a game that's very, very popular called Splendor, and people do like it, but I'm sitting there going, yeah, it's broken. And it is. Uh, from People sort of writing in, the, no, it's terrible. But yeah, there's a board game called Splendor. It's very, very popular, but I can't stand it because it's, oh, I, all I see is like, in the, you know, in the Matrix, where all you can see is the code? Yeah. I, I, I just see this code and like, oh, I can't win now. Well, I, I, I do like Splendor, but I definitely see what you mean by uh, by having those uh, those limitations. Yeah, um, you just go wait. Oh, damn it! <laughs> <laughs> you know, within like a second turn, like okay, and, and, right. some, and sometimes you don't even have a uh, a uh, choice in the matter. Sometimes it's no. just how the the dice no. roll. Exactly, and you just sitting there, really don't don't yeah. buy that. Don't. Oh, damn it. <laughs> So I just wanted to share that with you. But yeah, you just see the code, <laughs> especially like when you people like who, well, like myself, who dissect games and not in a bad way, but just like we love the medium so much. We want to see how, you know, we'll look, look some under the hood. We want to look underneath that. But when you do that and you play games, um, you can undermine your uh, enjoyment of them sometimes if you're not careful. So, well, yeah. Yeah, the, sure. Uh, it, well, in a way, I, I think in my case, it, it kind of, instead of undermining, it gives me a different type of appreciation. I think there's just as much art into seeing the final result as to seeing the process behind it. And when you start dissecting a game, you kind of get a feel for the process. And sure, there there's there's always going to be some stuff that isn't perfect or that should have, should have been done better. But when you kind of hone in on those those elements which make a game special i think you can have an even deeper appreciation for that game because you understand what went into it yeah absolutely and uh, so moving on to future you obviously develop other games beyond that weird text very invent- uh, imaginative it sounds like a uh, text combat game so you eventually now you know went off to university studied i mean is is it what you thought it would be when you went to university did you value your time there no i'd like to say that i did and i i don't regret having gone to uh, to college um but i i can't say that i i came out of it with a positive i came out of it with a diploma and that's about it i really didn't like my time there um i it, it's really once i i hit the job market that i really felt that i was learning and that I was growing as first as a programmer because I, I wasn't working in games back then. I was a, uh, a web developer. Um, but that first year and, you know, even afterwards, it's 
they tell you that in school what they're teaching you is how to learn and I, I really feel like that's the case. They give you the, the really strict basics uh, for for whatever you're learning. At least at least where where I went. And um, when you get to to the job market, then it becomes a whole other matter. There's like systems are more complicated. Uh, the consequences of whatever you do are are tangible and real. And for me, that was such a bigger motivation rather than doing homework and someone grading it and throwing it uh, throwing it away, which I really had. I always had a tough time with. Yeah, it's. Um... It is odd, isn't it? But they're the, you're right. They're trying to teach you how to learn, which is a very peculiar thing to say, but especially in in university. But obviously, you got some something from it because you're now talking to me. <laughs> <laughs> because eventually, you left uh, traditional development, video game, no, sorry, uh, sort of programming, and you started working on um, on in, in making all your own games. How did that happen? Did you start working for someone else first? Yeah, so I worked for three years as a um, uh, a web developer, and that was followed three uh, with um, be- getting hired as a flash game programmer. So I was working with a company who did uh, the kind of promo games for um, for websites like Disney or Nickelodeon back in the heyday of flash programming, mm. and uh, we would do these about two or. Th- let's say a month worth of of development on a game and then we would ship it out so they were really quick uh really small games uh but i got to to work on like 12 to 15 projects during my tenure uh at that company over the course of about 3 years uh we did work on a few bigger projects but um sometimes for a few months but overall yeah it was about a month per project and at that time i was really more of a programmer than anything else uh i i did have some input into what was going in and you know because i was the one integrating everything i could add a little touch of my own work but ultimately deadlines were tight and it was really difficult to really go out of the the bounds of what was being being required which uh, i i really found pretty difficult because as you might imagine at that time i i really wanted to have the uh, the the creative control over making a game and um si- the situations at that time were just not made uh, just not made made that uh, available fair enough so um Bring us up to date then. You 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 started uh, Dragon Slumber, and you you made it. Uh, you said we've already mentioned the uh, the JRPG that you made. Yes. Yeah. So I started working on an engine for a JRPG in uh, May of 2012. Okay. Uh, and I I basically programmed the entire uh, logic of it as well as a demo game, which was the equivalent of maybe 20 to 30 minutes of gameplay uh, in about six months, I would say. And the goal I had with that was to find someone to work with on a full-scale um, project. 
Um, so in, in 2013, I started, uh, early 2013, I started searching for people. A few people came forward, but nothing fell through. And I eventually decided, you know what, I'm going to do this on my own. Uh, so I registered a company at that time and, um, I, I didn't quite do it on my own because I did hire uh, a plethora of artists and uh, composer, sound effect people, um, but I took care of everything else. All of the design in Airlight Core, all of the writing, uh, the programming, of course, marketing, all that stuff was all uh, on my shoulders. And uh, yeah, the, the development of that game went from May 2012 to... February 2017. So uh, it was it was quite a journey, especially since I already also had a uh, full time job during that time to help pay for all of the assets that the game required. Yeah, you gotta put food on the table, haven't you? It's uh, it's always that balance, but you're having to work ridiculous hours to to get that done, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was really rough and honestly the the most difficult part during that period was not working uh working a day job along with working uh on the game. Mm. Uh it it was a lot of sacrifices for sure. I saw my my family less, I saw my friends a lot less. I, I yeah. stopped going out. But really the most difficult part I think was just finding the right people to work on a project and keeping them on you know our like core was a big project overall it's it's it takes 20 25 hours of uh it's a 25 hour game so that involves a lot of uh, a lot of characters a lot of um visual effects a lot of backgrounds and that keep that kept accumulating and i needed to hire not only artists to complete the job but sometimes people would leave and then i would be left because this is a one-man project i would be left to find new people to replace them who had to be equally as good and also be able to um uh, have the same quality level that uh, the the rest of the assets had mm. Mm. that's uh, that's no mean feat so well done for completing that. But we're, we are now up to date where you've actually come. So, okay, that was a thing. We're, we're, and we'll link it in the show notes. It sounds awesome. But that was a thing we did. But we're here to talk about Astral Traveler, which is a very different game. And uh, it's a very um, pure game. I'm going to call yep. it that. It's a very pure experience. But before we go on to that, let's talk about you and you as a creator. What do you believe is the biggest influence in you as a creator? Um, I think I'd have a tough time uh, finding a single big influence in my life. Because okay. I, 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 I tend to be the kind of guy who really wants... I, I think there's, there's something interesting in everything. Like playing a lot of games... And I'm going to give a good example. Uh, one of my favorite examples is uh, the game Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde for NES that, um, you know, has been commonly known as, oh, it's the worst game of all time and makes right. so many worse games. But that game has has really interesting mechanics. The the, the fact that um, you, you play this character and where you die, this second character starts walking up to the place where you die and if you do if you uh, destroy enough enemies during that time your first character revives and i i think that's a really interesting mechanic that's a really um um 
you know, interesting way of approaching death in video games. And it was made very early in this in this game that is otherwise known to be pretty bad. Um, and I think a lot of games have those types of elements. And when you start breaking games down into, um, oh, it's this is good, this is... Uh, rather than, than saying this is good, this is bad, but you start taking individual elements, I think that's where you start really building a portfolio of okay well i could do this in my game or this is a good idea but i could change this in this manner um so really like obviously i i could name a lot of the big names like anyone else shigeru miyamoto uh hironobu sakaguchi like i yeah i I grew up with those names yeah and these are people and very venerated and rightly so they they are extraordinary designers of, of of video games amazing but uh you know it doesn't necessarily have to be others uh, that you've been influenced by it might be a thing like your pet dog or something i've had that on a previous show um uh, but uh, yeah <laughs> it, it, you know like yes they're inspired by them but um yeah it's just what i want to know what i've found is that of any creator they genuinely find themselves orbiting something whether consciously or subconsciously uh, and i just wanted to get that out for you because you are you have clearly been inspired to create things and you've been doing it for many years and I'd just like to know what you think. This is a bit of a, a self-reflection. What do you think influences you? And uh, there's a perfectly valid to say, well, weird stuff in other video games that people have done. Even games yeah. that pe- people consider as bad. But yeah, that may be true as a whole. Uh, but what about that bit? <laughs> but yeah, but uh, I think I think there's no... When it, when it comes to me, I don't think I have a single influence, or there, there's no big thing that I, I point to and say, yeah, that that is definitely my influence, because I I, I tend to really like variety, mm-hmm. and um, I, I like to the, the same way I look at all the games and I think, okay, well this is good, th- this aspect is good, this aspect is bad, I I. I like change and I like different things and I, I like to see different things. Um, like I said, my, my first game is a Japanese style 2D retro RPG. My second game is a 3D style fast paced racing game, which, uh, as you mentioned, is, is kind of pured and distilled down to its, its essential components. Yeah. So I, I really like to, like, I, I don't have any focal point as much as i like to go in in every direction i like to see all of the that variety and all of that diversity i i i mean what what is my influence games i just love games but i love the variety of games like i like every game i like well i don't like every game but i like how diverse everything is and how much there's there's something in, in different styles and um something for for everyone really and you know it genuinely even, is the genuinely is but to yeah communicate that to the wider world is very tough oh yeah absolutely <laughs> um okay. yeah no yeah. i don't know like and even when it comes to there, there are so many games that i follow that um i i don't really have an interest in playing but i i just love hearing about games and i love watching shows about i love i don't know if you know crontendo but the the guy kind of plays through all of the nes games and i love seeing 
all of those games that I've never seen before and just seeing something fresh and new and that can spark new ideas as well. All of those are, are huge influences. I love retro. Retro is definitely very strong with me with the NES and the SNES. Um, but yeah, I just like the, the general diversity and variety of everything. It's quite extraordinary seeing the, the, the kernel of ideas that uh, we now take for granted beginning in those times. Um, what do you, what developer do you most admire in the industry and why? Um, I, I really like id software, uh, more the old id software, probably the old school straight out of soft, uh, soft tech, I believe, mm. uh, soft desk, uh, id software. I love that those guys kind of, you know, beyond the fact that they they had they, they made awesome games like Commander Keen and Doom and Wolfenstein, I love that those guys kind of they were indie developers. They went out and they worked hard and they sac- they made a lot of sacrifices. They um they were day and night to get their games out there on the market. And um huge respect like they, they are they, they they were so talented. They um, really managed to capture something something special, and um, yeah, I just I I, I admire, admire that level of of dedication. Um, that it, it takes it takes so much work and so much courage to to go out there on your own, basically, or as a small group, and say, you know what, I'm going to make those sacrifices, and I'm I'm going to take the risk that uh this might not work out and working through that pain and those guys did it and they they were heavily rewarded for it and they continued working and making redefining the the um, gaming industry generation after generation so hats off to them they changed the world didn't they uh, oh, whether, they, whether they liked it or not um making their 2.5d games um which you know self-admission you're like yeah the doom wasn't really 3d it was as a this faux 3d but wasn't it amazing yes oh it, it's yeah, it's yeah. fantastic the yeah. the the design in doom is fantastic and it's i feel like it's no longer being done which is a shame because i love the level design in doom i love how you you kind of navigate around these environments and try to find your way and discover nooks and crannies in in, in these dark levels and you find secrets and all of that nowadays a lot of level design is very straightforward it's a lot of corridors um, I think the, the the most recent Doom kind of had a blend of those two things, a blend of corridors and a little bit of navigation, depending on what the rooms were. But um, beyond that, like it's it's so rare to have that type of level design, and I absolutely love it. I wish it came back more than uh, the corridors we have now. I understand, but. Um... Yeah, people have, have been playing uh, the, the evolution of FPSs is, is a story in and of itself. Um, but you know how we got to Call of Duty, no one really knows. I think maybe someone does, but <laughs> it's a it's, it's a storied history that uh, some may go. How did we get from there to there? Like, yeah, I know. Um, so, but no, it's a great response because it are uh, uh, you know a, a huge amount of affection towards them. I still still remember marveling at Quake. And uh, figuring out the um, WASD keys were and, and mouse look were the way to go. Um, when as soon as I understood that, and I, I mastered the art of circle strafing, that was it. I was in. 
Um, I'm rubbish now, but uh, back then, wow. <laughs> um, I actually grew up with a mouse. Even if, even if in the Doom days, I would use a mouse to move around. Yeah. Back then, I would use the right mouse button to walk forward. Actually, yeah, you can actually aim a little bit with the left and right with the with the mouse. Yeah. But well, especially people, since yeah. there was no vertical vertical uh, aiming in Doom, so it made things yeah. a lot easier. It did. It did. Okay. Um, last question of the first half. Well done. You made it. Um, awesome. My, yeah, well done. Um, Gold star. <laughs> we've got to ask this one question first. <laughs> so um, it's uh, it's my favourite question because it gives you an inkling about you know what makes you tick. Uh, to go to the games, that is, of course. Um, what are you playing right now? Oh, uh, I'm playing Prey, actually. Okay. Uh, so, it, and it's not easy either because uh, I had stopped playing anything uh, for the last few weeks leading up to the release of uh, Astral Traveler. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I, I had I had started a uh, playthrough of Prey. It's, um, I mean, I, I love games by Arcane Studios. I love Dishonored as well beforehand. Uh, I love, you know, I, I, I've mentioned a lot that I am all about variety and, and discovering things, and those games allow for that. Those games allow for exploring those environments and finding objects. Um, I think Prey is really fascinating with the way you kind of um, recycle elements to create new ammo and and whatever elements. Um, yeah, I'm really. It's it's a tough game. It's a really difficult game, but I'm really enjoying uh, enjoying it so far. I hear very good things about it, and I'm very tempted to dive in, but there's a certain Destiny Two that's distracting me. <laughs> uh, curse it! Curse it! <laughs> Um, Too many games. There are so many games coming out, and oh, it's it's just, so difficult to. Uh, this year like, has been ridiculous. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, especially now, uh, even on the uh, the indie game uh, standpoint, now that Steam Greenlight is gone and replaced with Steam Direct, it just double, tripled the number of games getting released on the the Steam platform. So yeah. uh, it gets it gets really crazy, and, and a lot of them are are awesome too. Like mm. a lot of great ideas and. There's just not enough time to play everything. No, which is why I sort of plucked you out because I wanted to talk to you about this game because it Astral Traveler is so pure. That's what yeah. I like about it. It just doesn't. There's no ambiguity at all, <laughs> and it's really, really nice um, to to. Well, not nice. It's it's a, it's really refreshing to experience that, and that's why I wanted to bring you on to chat about it. So, and that's what we're going to do now. That's the end of the first half, well done, and let's move on to the second half, where we delve deep into Astral Traveller. Let's do it. So, Kevin, um, what is Astral Traveller? 
Astral Traveler is kind of a hybrid between a racing game and a runner game. Uh, so it's not an endless runner. The The tracks are pre-established. They are created and thought out. Um, it's kind of a mix between um, actually F-Zero and kind of Tempest 2000. So you kind of go around these tubes and uh, it's a lot of obstacle avoidance. Uh, there's enemies attacking you. Um, it's a very frenetic type of game, very fast paced. Um, and I kind of, as I was designing it, my, my goal really was to kind of emphasize that, uh, that sense of speed, but also, also emphasize that sense of reaction from the player and, and make them feel, okay, I'm dodging here and dodging here. And, you know, there, there's always, you gotta, you gotta pay attention to the track. There's no, uh, there, there's no two ways about it. If you don't pay attention, you're gonna, you're gonna die pretty, pretty fast. That's that's very true. Uh, it's the speed reaction required to the further you get into the game. It, it is quite it's more than intense. It's like, oh really? Come on! How am I supposed <laughs> to do that? Which we'll come on to that later. But I want to ask you about because there's a, there's a key mechanic in the game with there's these big blue spheres. At least initially, they might change color later on. But initially, they have these very large blue spheres along the along the track. And with as with most races. There are usually chevrons on the ground to indicate that you get a little speed boost. Not with this game. Um, here, with, with Astral Traveller, you have these big blue spheres. They serve two purposes. One of them is to give you a speed boost, provided you press a button or a key at a, key at a, at a, at a moment just as you go underneath them, Right. Yes. Um, so the the ship has the ability to phase, which is yes. uh, it kind of turns blue for a brief period. Mm-hmm. And if you're managed to phase just as you hit those blue orbs, you're going to get a, a speed boost. If you miss your phase, uh, you, you are going to get a small penalty as well. And the closer you are to that orb when you phase, the faster the speed boost. So there is there is definitely skill involved there, and that that really wh- is where it comes down to when you want to um, to do well on the leaderboards as well. How did that come about? How did so, that, that that system? How did it come about? As you mentioned, in in a lot of other games, you kind of have those um, those ground chevrons, or you yeah. might have uh, you might have a nitro that you kind of have, or a nitro bar that you fill up and then you use gradually. Yeah. But what I wanted to provide is is I wanted to make that a gameplay mechanic. I wanted to um, you know. It all falls falls into the rest of the game as well. So the the, the player is asked to shoot down enemies. He's pl- he's jumping from platform to platform, and there are these orbs which are optional. Uh, you could just shoot them down and take the health, and that'll help you out that way. But if you if you want to get that speed boost, and if you want to to be the 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 very best, uh, you need to be able to to time time it appropriately. And, um, you know, 
it's it's an it's a the kind of mechanic that exists in other games in other forms. Uh, you could take, for instance, Guitar Hero, uh, which is all about pressing the right key at the right time. Uh, and it's just a matter of okay, well, I I have this need to add a speed boost, and I I can just give it for free. But then I I always feel like when I when it's not a choice by the player, it's a lot less interesting. So I I decided to make make it this um, this challenge instead. And by making it a challenge, you can do it better, which means that you increase the uh, the bonus that it provides. Or you can uh, shoot them down for health, so it gives them more. It gives the blue orbs more than one purpose, which is always interesting. Since then, it's even more of a choice for the player. I just want to ask about that because I didn't really talk about that. I was leading to my next question, which was: At what point do you balance taking energy from the spheres or using them as a speed boost? And, what, and, when, and it's it's situational. Do you agree? Oh yeah, uh, I think a lot of it comes down to well, me for me personally, when I play, I mm. I wait until the last ten. So in in every level, your health drains a little bit gradually, mm. yes. and when you when you move through the blue orbs, it stops draining for a moment and then it continues. Yes. Um. So if you, if you're close to to the ten uh, percent of your health. Um, then you might want to shoot them down and, and take the health instead of, of phasing through since you might not be able to to go far enough. Um, but different players are, are going to approach them very differently as well. Um, so, some people uh, kind of struggle a little bit more. So instead of, of taking the speed boost, which does increase difficulty, and enemies, uh, obstacles are going to move faster towards you, so you need to have better reflexes. Um, instead of taking that level difficulty, they'll shoot them down instead. It gives them health, and they are able to move throughout the the remainder of the level, um, okay. which make which makes it interesting as well. Since in that sense, um, the player kind of has a little bit more control over the level of difficulty that they want to have in their game, and they are um, rewarded when they choose the higher difficulty with uh, better times and higher spots on the leaderboards. Yeah, I just find it fascinating. A little bit, although the game is pure, and it is very obvious what you're supposed to do, there are layers <laughs> uh, <laughs> to this game. And um, and it allows you to strategize and you know, op- optimize your your play to get the best time, because that's what you're trying to do. Yep. Now, speaking of which, uh, how have you designed the tracks to ensure that there's enough time between each action that a player needs to commit so there are times when the the track basically almost disintegrates, and you have to be very very careful that you don't, you know, fall off of it. Um, sure. How have, how have you managed to design that so you don't? It doesn't become quote unquote unfair. Um, that that really came down to playing the game a lot. Um, a lot of uh, so as you mentioned, there are holes in the track, and your ship can kind of there, there's a little bit of platforming involved. You kind of leap from from platform to platform, and depending on the way the track is um, angled, sometimes we couldn't see what is what obstacles are coming up. So the track in those cases change colors uh, as you move up to the edge of a hole, for instance, and that kind of gives you an indication of where to move. Um, It was really important for me to 
not have an outright arrow and not say, okay, now you must turn left. Now I don't want to tell the player this is what you must do. I I would rather tell the player, um, you know, there there's a hole coming up. You figure it out the way you want and kind of integrate it within the um, the environment. And that really came down to a lot of balancing the length of those warnings, uh, the size of platforms. Um, you know, we, we've been playing the game for months and months, trying to um, get it, not only get the, the design, uh, the uh, balancing right, but also kind of mitigating that against the fact that we are also getting better and better at our game. Um, and, and admittingly, Astro Traveler is a pretty difficult game. There's, there's definitely a lot of um, elements to contend with. And um, I think it's, you know, it's the kind of game that, that will really uh, appeal to a, a hardcore audience uh, looking for a challenge, I think. Yes, Yes, it is not me. Not no, it is doesn't uh, pull any punches, which is fine. You are you are rewarded for 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 playing well, but you do have to practice and get better at it. Um, you know, as the, <laughs> you know, how do I get better at this game? Practice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Practice, practice, practice. You need to put in the time, and yeah. and you know, even as you play the game uh, a level more and more, you kind of get into that rhythm of okay, turn here catch that orb jump here and then you kind of build this intuition uh, of where you're supposed to move and oh wait I, I could i could go here if i if i move to this place there's an orb there that i could use for health or for a speed boost so you can kind of optimize your path as uh, as well okay. um so there is a yeah there, there is even beyond when you complete it the first time there is stuff to discover i think so I'm going to ask you something else now. This is you may sort of think, well, this is a strange question. Maybe it's not. But the music, I found the tempo of it alters my play. Was that deliberate? Um, so I admittingly did not uh, do a lot as far as the music is concerned. Uh, uh, Astral Traveler was built by myself and my partner Borganel, who is from Turkey. He okay. was the one who uh, took care of the music in general. He actually is a uh, composer. He plays a, uh, a lot of music. Um, that the, the music in the game was um, some royalty-free that uh, material that he found on the internet. And uh, he kind of tweaked some of it to kind of feel, uh, fill in with the tempo of the various nebulas. Right. So there is yeah. a, a sensitivity that, you know, depending on what level you're on, I do, did feel that the tempo of the music was different. Uh, and that was, quite, that was quite interesting because it's not a rhythm game, uh, although every game has a rhythm to it. You know, but it's, it's not thumper. Uh, which is, yeah. you know, uh, that, that's the whole purpose of that game is to to make sure that you hit things on the right beat. Um, that's not what Astral Travel is about. This is about more a visual experience. But nonetheless, the music and the sound effects do 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 a lot to enhance the experience. I just felt, you know, um, you know, kudos to your to your partner there. It's actually infused the music to reflect what's happening on the screen, uh, and that's really important. Yeah, I, I personally love like I, I find find that music and uh, sound effects uh, are so important in games, and they really underline uh, a lot of what's happening. I I think it's kind of sad because 
Um, I feel like music and video games is a little bit more uh, underappreciated nowadays than it used to right. be. Yeah. Uh, when I grew up with uh, the NES, SNES, like those soundtracks are legendary. They stand mm. up today. Zelda, Mario, um, you know, Final Fantasy. And nowadays, um, I don't feel like it is the odd soundtrack that really resonates and that really feels like it has the potential to transcend the the um, transcend generations. Basically, the same way yeah. old ones did. Yeah. I mean, then again, a lot of games do come with bonus, like, you know, you get the the soundtrack so uh, as a bonus, as a, as a DLC, which it's nice. It's a nice thing to do, to extract the music from, from the game. I mean, if you, if you, you know, have Disaster Piece with, with, um, with Fez, that's, a, that's an awesome soundtrack. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I, I just... Um, you're right, it, it is important, music and uh, atmosphere and sound effects, spot effects, all of that, the whole, the whole um, tapestry of sound in a, in a game is vital. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it, beeps, it beats the beeps and bloops of Pong of all those years ago <laughs> they had. Yeah, so, well, w- when you mentioned Disaster Piece, I, I do agree that the Fez soundtrack is pretty awesome. And the thing is, it is modeled after retro stuff as well. Yes, um, it is. And, and that's the thing. I feel like a lot of the, the new stuff, the stuff that that really resonates, tends to be um, more retro style just because of the way music is composed nowadays. I feel like mm. a lot of music nowadays is very is meant to be very ambient. It's very meant to be a lot of background stuff. You're not supposed to take notice of it too much and... Mm. When you stop playing the game, a lot of that music kind of goes away. You, you, I'm, I'm there. You know, we play so many games, and yet, how many soundtracks can we actually hum? Um, <laughs> but uh, the the retro style, you, you you were kind of forced to. You had so few options as far as sound channels that uh, yeah. when it came to composing, well, you had to have a catchy melody mm. because you only had like three or four instruments quote-unquote to Mm. work with yeah um so maybe and i don't think that it's impossible to do that nowadays i I think it's perfectly possible to do that with modern um modern platforms and and it has been you know let's face it you know but Um, even with an orchestra but i mean mm. the choice doesn't seem to be gearing towards that and maybe it's just an an audience preference i think it's a shame it is yeah. Well, Kevin, um, Astral Traveler's out on Windows, PC, Mac, and Linux. Is that right? Yes, that is correct. It is, it's so exciting because my first game, uh, was I made the engine, and it was made with uh, C-Sharp and XNA, so I couldn't release it for Mac and Linux. A lot uh, of people asked me for it, and I, I just I didn't ha- it was technologically not possible. So no. I'm really happy this time to be able to provide it on multiple platforms like this. That's great. Yeah, the yeah. Linux uh, community is... Very vocal, uh, if, <laughs> if, if, and uh, I always make sure that if there's a game that's uh, on that platform, I, I advertise it as such. And my laptops are Mac because they can take a bullet and still work. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I have all three platforms. Although my well, gaming, my gaming machine is a PC. Ah, uh, I see. Yeah, uh, because th- it, it covers all of the things. Um, yeah. But even despite Windows. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but Kevin, it's been fantastic having you on. Thank you very, very much for sharing your experience with making National Traveller and your, your history in, in making and playing video games. 
Yeah, thank you. It was a blast being here. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what my next game is going to be, but uh, you can you can rest assured. I have a few ideas and they're all completely different from anything I've done thus far. Yes, it's going to be a ticker, isn't it? Yep, it's going exactly. to be a clicker. Uh, it'll be fantastic. <laughs> Whatever it is, it'll be fantastic. <laughs> um, yes. So you want to welcome to come back on the show to chat about that, whatever it may be. Sure. But in the meantime, Kevin, thank you very, very much for being on the show. Thank you. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review, and you can also don't forget listen to us on Stitcher dot com. So just go to Stitcher dot com, and you can stream the show from there you just look up the sausage factory and you can find us that'd be great you can follow me on twitter at chris o'regan no apostrophes and uh, if you want to email me any feedback on the show or actually you're a developer you listen to the show and want your game featured on it please do email me at chris at spong.com also don't forget to check out the computer game show which is the Stablemate podcast, should we say, of Spong.com. Bye!